Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Hello, I'm Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. And I'm Jeremy Cronick, Associate Director of Research here at the C.D. Howe Institute. The cost of being a Canadian hasn't been this high since 1983, when Monty Python's Meaning of Life was playing at the box office and Irene Cara's flash dance, What a Feeling, was topping the music charts. But Canadians today are having a hard time looking on the bright side of life, and the feeling they've got is a pit in their stomach as older Canadians see their retirement savings erode, and one in four homeowners fear having to sell the house to meet rising costs. Bill, Jeremy, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you. Sorry that the topic isn't more cheerful, but we'll do our best. Well, inflation north of 7% is a sign that demand is outpacing supply. The solution isn't to lower demand, is it, but to increase supply. How do we accomplish that? It would be nice if we could solve the entire problem by increasing supply. If you could somehow make the productive capacity of Canada's economy go up by 5% tomorrow, uh, then we would all feel a whole lot better and the Bank of Canada's job of bringing inflation down would almost be done for it in a sense. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, the Bank of Canada does need to rein demand back in and uh, the difficulty about the supply side of the economy is that uh, we're not going to see 5% increases. Um, my my nervousness is that we may not see really much of any increase in the economy's productive capacity over the next year and a bit. And if that's the case, then all of the job of bringing inflation down and getting us from the situation of demand exceeding supply that we're in now to demand being less than supply, it all falls on demand. And that makes for a rougher ride for the economy. Yeah, I think to, to Bill's point, I mean, increasing the supply side is a much slower moving target. And so unfortunately, uh, we are going to have to lower demand to bring that balance back. But I'll say one thing maybe on a more on a cheerful front is we do have a really tight labor market and there are a lot of people looking for jobs. So on the labor side, we seem to be in position to increase productive capacity, which means it's really the government's job. Uh, to find ways to focus on the capital side, right? To, to increasing that capacity to, uh, to bring those looking for jobs uh, back into the labor market. So what you're saying is this is more of a fiscal problem than a monetary policy problem. It, it partly is a fiscal problem in the sense that so much of the pressure on the economy's productive capacity has come about because we've had uh, so much spending uh, and financed with borrowed money since the beginning of the pandemic. And the uh, it wasn't a problem to respond to the pandemic by uh, opening the budgetary taps a little and uh, just as for the Bank of Canada to make monetary policy as easy as it was at the beginning of the pandemic was entirely appropriate. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, over the course of the economy reopening and the pandemic ebbing, uh, we were a little slow in both uh, fiscal and monetary policy to adapt to the new reality. And you can excuse that to some extent uh, on the basis that uh, the economy was uncertain. We didn't know what COVID was going to do. Uh, but on the fiscal side, I do fault the government for having done so many things that were uh, clearly going to raise spending permanently. I mean, the federal government employs tens of thousands of people more now than it did before the pandemic. It's not clear to me at any rate that their ability to deliver services has improved by anything like the same um, amount. And one of the things that's done is it's tightened up the labor market. Uh, we 
we've had since the beginning of the pandemic about a 10% increase in public sector employment. Some of that was in healthcare where we uh, all would understand the need to bring more people in, but a lot of it hasn't been in healthcare. And what that's done is it's kind of like been, the, the metaphor that keeps occurring to my mind is that we've got the government with its fiscal foot to the floor, even as the Bank of Canada is putting its foot on the brake. And uh, that's a very bad thing for your car. Well, and, and and I'll just add there that, I mean, the, the, the issue is that as the bank looks to tighten uh, monetary policy, that the government continues to, as Bill said, put it put its foot to the ground. And it's not so much that, that it's only the government's job, but the bank just doesn't have the tools uh, to increase the productive capacity. It's, it's tool, it's blunt tool, the overnight rate. Uh, really, all it can do is affect demand. And so unless the government's there to provide that additional uh, kick, not necessarily by additional spending, but just to provide the kind of incentives that we need uh, to boost the productive capacity, the bank, just the only thing it can do is slow down demand. I'm not much of a car guy, but help me with the metaphor, though, because if the Bank of Canada is raising the cost of borrowing to slow the demand side of the equation because demand is outstripping supply. Um, don't we want to have a little bit of that happening while we're also trying to boost that supply? So don't we want the Bank of Canada on the brake and the government of Canada on the accelerator? Well, we do, we definitely want the bank's foot on the brake. I mean, uh, the, the only problem with recalling uh, the early 1980s, depending on how you feel about Flashdance, I guess, is that uh, when inflation was last at this level, it was on its way down. And uh, at this point, uh, it may well uh, still be headed higher if the Bank of Canada doesn't uh, get ahead of it. Uh, but what we would like to see, I think I speak confidently for Jeremy uh, and me both, he'll correct me if, uh, if not. Is oh, I know he will. The government uh, doing more to uh, allow the private side of the economy to expand. I mean, the government can do things to expand productive capacity. Uh, they have an important role in infrastructure. Uh, the airports are a mess these days. As we know, ports have been a problem. So these are areas of federal jurisdiction. But so much of what the federal government do, is doing is, is transfer payments and, and things that are really fueling consumption. And I, when you talk to business people, especially the last few months, uh, you get a very negative assessment of the uh, environment in Ottawa, lack of concern for business, lack of concern for competitiveness. So some of the things that I think would make a difference, we've talked a little bit about low business investment. I'd like to see a general investment tax credit. If the federal government wants to do something on the fiscal side that is going to stimulate the supply side of the economy, I think that that would be a good thing to do. Um, it's probably not really on their radar, not for the next federal budget, uh, but that's the type of thing that would uh, give that that workforce where we've seen all this increase in employment, but the amount of capital, the amount of actual machinery and equipment, the stuff that workers uh, work with uh, per worker has been falling because of this weak business investment. So one of the things that we need is a spur for business investment, and that would be my first option uh, on the fiscal side, an investment tax credit. Uh, it's not something that every tax purist would recommend, but it's quick. We know how to do it, and I know it would have an effect. Yeah, so maybe I'll just add a couple points uh, to that, because, again, I agree. Do, do, when I said before about you know your point about the government doing more, more doesn't necessarily mean more spending, right? More means creating the kinds of incentives uh, that allow the kind of business investment that we need to boost the productivity, which is really the only way you can kind of get real growth 
in, in a developed country like Canada's. So that, that would be point number one. But since we're getting into specifics, I mean, Canada has a track record uh, around SME growth of being really good at getting businesses created. It has less of a good track record when it comes to growing those into domestic champions. And so there's a lot that can be done uh, there in terms of boosting our SME to get the kind of growth, the kind of uh, innovation that we really need uh, at home here in, in Canada. And, you know, there's, there's, there's many different options we can consider. One is to allow the creation of more patient capital. And one there would be, uh, you know, a preferred tax rate, let's say, for holding shares in companies for longer than a period of time, whatever that period of time is. So there's, there's stuff that we need to be thinking about there to create the kind of productivity gains that we really need in this country. Michael, maybe I'll just come in with another specific thing uh, because we should do more than uh, just complain about this this awkward macro situation. Uh, one of the really startling statistics when you compare business investment in Canada to business investment abroad is that in the United States right now, they are investing per worker about four times what Canada is on intellectual property products. So this is intangible capital, uh, software, for example, databases. This this is a very strange thing to see uh, because we all thought that the pandemic was going to give such a spur to the digital economy and kind of uh, kick us ahead when it comes to uh, the the sort of uh, business capital that would produce cleaner, better paying jobs that would allow us to do business remotely and so on. Well, in the United States, that is what's happened. But in Canada, uh, there's been very little response at all. So if we can figure out ways of advantaging investments uh, in that type of capital more than what what is clearly currently the case, uh, that would provide all kinds of a spur to productivity and would give us, a, a in the short run, it'd be nice to have that additional boost to productive capacity. The further ahead we look, the more important that boost to productive capacity is because that's where rising living standards are going to come from over the long haul. Okay, so give me some perspective on, on this. So the concern, of course, is that we are seeing spending at the federal level, but it's fueling demand, which is the thing that the Bank of Canada is trying to curtail. And by focusing more on putting the cash where it needs to go within the business community to build up that ability to have uh, excess supply is the big issue. If we're at inflation rate of 7%, and that's the demand side of that equation, how realistic is it that we can eclipse that on the supply growth side? Like, what is what is a reasonable expectation for increasing supply on that percentage? Because it sounds to me like this is a much longer tail problem than just throwing a couple of tax breaks here and then three months later, we don't have to think about a recession. Well, it takes us back to the opening of the conversation. If you could raise supply by 5% overnight, well, uh, you would you? do it for all kinds of reasons. Um, it, it's not as fast as that. Putting capital in place, getting those productivity gains does take time. Uh, but the difficulty, just to go back to the numbers right now, if you look at uh, uh, the pace of nominal spending in the economy, so the actual dollars that are changing hands, uh, you know, it's up about 9% year over year. And if the Bank of Canada is going to get in inflation down to 2%, then it has to go down, you know, to 8%, 7%, 6%, 5%, and so on and so on. But how far it has to go towards 2 depends on what's happening on the supply side of the economy. If the economy is growing by 2% uh, in real terms, then 2% real plus 2% inflation means they only have to get it down to 4%. The way things are right now, uh, it looks like they might have to get it down almost all the way to 2% with almost no real growth. So uh, it's making the bank 
make a candidate's task much harder. Uh, the 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 bottom line, though, is like there's no time like the present. Uh, it would have been nice if the federal government had been more oriented towards long-term growth a couple of years ago. Uh, COVID naturally knocked everybody off balance. Uh, but the sooner we get our act together on that front, the sooner they start to pay attention to it as an explicit goal of policy, uh, the easier the task gets, the further ahead you look. Yeah, I mean, Bill's right. I mean, you got you got to start now. Uh, unfortunately, it is slow moving, and so it's unlikely to make a huge dent to the job of the Bank of Canada. But if we can just bring it back to the question of, of, of how far the bank might have to go with all this, I mean, there's a few factors at play here. One, monetary policy works with a lag. So the bank's already increased by 125 basis points. They're likely to do another 75 basis points in a week or two. And so there is a question of how much impact that has already had, but we haven't seen yet. And, and there's uncertainty around that, right? I mean, one thing we are seeing is a little bit of biting when it comes to uh, both money growth. That has slowed down, which is a good thing. Uh, and the, the other one is the, is the housing market, right? And the housing market plays a huge role in terms of how, how confident people feel to go out and spend. There's a real wealth effect that comes from seeing your house prices go up and up and up, even if your income necessarily hasn't. So, um, so that, those kinds of things, that lag in the way monetary policy works, uh, makes it tricky to assess how much further the bank has to go to bring demand back in line with what's going to be slow moving productive capacity increases. So when supply rises too slowly, but we see fluctuations in demand because you know, we're seeing a decline in the housing market, we're concerned about where the next dollar is coming from and whether or not we can pay the bills, we might be pulling back a little bit more. We see that fluctuation. What's the ultimate impact of slow growth and a rubber ball demand for the overall economy? Is this the stagflation concern that both David Dodge and Stephen Polos warned us about in the last episode? Stagflation could mean the inevitable, and I do uh, without much happiness say inevitable moment after monetary policy tightens when the real economy is is weakening, but yet inflation, which has more momentum behind it, stays high. And that's always a very uh, discouraging and unpleasant period because it, it, it feels like all the pain for no gain. Um, what happened in the 1970s was different in the sense that uh, economic growth, I mean, the, the underlying trend rate of economic growth was faster then, but it had slowed down from the 1960s. And one of the things that got people into trouble in the 1970s in Canada and elsewhere was uh, it wasn't obvious what had happened. And so monetary policy, fiscal policy continued to behave as though the underlying growth rate of the economy was still like it had been during the 50s and 60s. So they were stoking demand beyond what the economy could produce. And that was what uh, caused the inflation. In broad terms, something similar is happening now. The difference is that the productive economy, the productive capacity of the economy, even before COVID hit, uh, wasn't growing all that rapidly. Uh, and now in the wake of COVID and all the stimulus that we've seen, it's probably not going to be increasing much, if anything, in Canada over the next uh, year and a bit. So that does unfortunately mean that that bouncing ball, uh, you know, the floor that it has to fall down to, which uh, in the past would have been rising over time. Uh, now, unfortunately, that floor isn't really moving very much. So again, as we've been saying, it's likely that the impact falls uh, entirely really on demand. And that's tougher for everybody. And it, it makes the Bank of Canada's job of getting inflation down without causing a recession that much harder. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Bill. The, the one thing I might add to that, again, coming back to something I said at the beginning, is around the labor market, right? And so, you know, the, the, the Institute does a lot of work on defining recessions um, and what we mean by that. Um, and so it's more than just sort of slowing, uh, slowing economy from a GDP perspective, but it's also uh, an increase in unemployment. And so the one thing the bank, I think, has going for it here is this tight labor market. If you have a lot of people who are still looking for jobs, and you can somehow build up that productive capacity, even a little bit at a time, um, you create a little bit of a buffer there to perhaps engineer, I don't wanna use the term soft landing because I think it gets used way too much, but you, you at least have a bit of a buffer there to hopefully prevent the depths uh, of the recession. And that is different than I think what we saw, uh, you know, in, in the late seventies. And so, um, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty because as I said, monetary policy does work with a lag. Um, and we seem to accept that much more on the other when, when things are, uh, you know, things are slow moving than when things are moving the way they are now, but I do believe it. And so we'll have to kind of see how that plays out, but that, that labor market will be an interesting factor in my view to see how, uh, you know, how far we need to go with all of this. Michael, one, one sort of policy wonky reason to be optimistic at this point is that there is much less uh, dissonance in, in people's views about what it is that caused the problem than was the case in the 1970s. In the 1970s, as inflation started to pick up, uh, there were all kinds of people who were saying that it was because of a particular commodity, oil particularly, or what was happening with food. It was the fault of big businesses. It was the fault of unions. And as a result of all these different diagnoses, all these different things were tried, including wage and price controls, and none of that worked. In fact, probably it exacerbated the problem because of all the economic distortions when you start to do that type of thing. Uh, and, and monetary policy was a little late to the game, and so we had this uh, decade and, and more even of inflation that was at a high enough level that people were very unhappy. This time around, uh, we're hearing it for sure because people will always look for scapegoats. It's the gas, it, you know, it's the carbon tax, it's, it's whatever high profits by grocers. Uh, but there's a very strong consensus compared to those earlier days that it was monetary policy that made a mistake. The central banks themselves are saying so. That didn't necessarily happen the earlier time round. And what that means is uh, there's just more of a readiness to act uh, where the root of the problem is. And that gives me more confidence that we will get this under control, uh, that we are not going to be waiting 15 years to see inflation back uh, down in the low single digits. It'll happen faster than that. Hey, Jeremy, you're the, the perma-pessimist in the group on this kind of stuff. Are you sharing Bill's optimism here? Because to your point about interest rate increases have what, as much as an 18 month lag or the impact on the economy before we really know what it did, we're entering the dog days of summer here. Are we going to see any significant fiscal levers pulled that is going to help on uh, reducing the demand side fueled by that, that cheaper money, while at the same time increasing the ability to expand supply capacity? Well, first of all, as a perma-pessimist, I'm not sure about that, but but no, I mean, listen, the, the problem is, and you see this already in the responses, and, and not just from the federal government, from provincial governments too, their instincts when things become more unaffordable for people is to give people more money to afford it, right? But that's, unfortunately, that really uh, does not help. It actually worsens 
uh, you know, price growth. So I'm not sure that fiscal is going to do much here. This really, unfortunately, is going to be something the Bank of Canada has to has to do because, as we've talked about a lot here, right? The only way to really help for the government is to is to improve the productive capacity side of things. So short of that happening, it's going to come through the impacts that interest rates have. On people and and to Bill's point, I am I am you know I am optimistic because of the reaction of the Bank of Canada. I think they have admitted their mistake. They clearly made this mistake, um, and now they're moving right. And 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 they might move even faster at the next announcement in in two weeks than they have in in thirty years. So um, I think there's there's optimism in the sense that they're moving, but this is going to hurt. I mean, inflation. I think people now, a lot of us who who weren't alive the last time inflation was in double digits or were too young to remember it, now we understand why the Bank of Canada focuses so much on inflation because inflation really hurts. It hurts a lot and it hurts disproportionately people at the lower end of the spectrum. Unfortunately, so do recessions. And so this is the problem really uh, you know, facing the Bank of Canada right now, which is why if we're going to get fiscal supports, it really has to be to build up the supply side. One, there, it's it's quite a natural reaction when we've been used to interest rates being as low as they have been for so long to look at rising interest rates with trepidation. But these very low interest rates that we've had for so long have really uh, caused a lot of problems. Uh, on the business side, we've seen people investing in things that probably wouldn't have made sense if people had used a more realistic sort of discount factor, a hurdle rate. There was just all this money available for stuff uh, that that's never going to pay a decent return. And governments have been spending as though the the marginal cost of a dollar of public funds was zero. Like you could just uh, you know spend unlimited amounts, and uh, it didn't matter if it never paid a return because there was always more that where that came from. One of the things that I think will be helpful over the next little while with interest rates being higher is this going to cause people to be a bit more disciplined in thinking about how they spend probably governments it's going to come to them a little bit later but as that interest bill starts to mount and the recession knocks some of the revenue growth uh, down uh, i think that we might see governments being a little bit more judicious in how they spend as well and that'll help can i add just one point on that michael um it's interesting that Bill said that because he's right about the interest rate. You know, we're talking about this as if we've sort of reached a really high level and we really haven't. I mean, the Bank of Canada's own estimate of the neutral rate, we're not even there yet. Now, if we go this big 75 basis point uh, increase next time, we will get to the bottom end of it. But it's just to show that, you know, we're, we've just gotten so used to this era of just super, super low interest rates that with 125 basis points, we're not even at the bottom uh, of what the bank considers to be that neutral rate. Well, let's expand upon that point because, you know, I'm one of these people who has a variable rate mortgage. I stress tested myself at a more nominal rate of about 5%. We had 75 basis points on top of what we've already seen here. Do you see that? And I suppose this is the cocktail party question. Does an additional 75 mean the Bank of Canada, as it gets to the, the bottom end of what is considered to be historically normal, uh, see that as an opportunity to, to pause and step back and see what the impact is? Or are we returning to higher rates? Certainly not, you know, back in the 80s when my parents were paying 18% for a mortgage rate, but how high the moon? Well, Jeremy, why don't you go first on that one? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, I mean... It, it, it's it's tricky, Michael. I know everybody wants that answer. You know, is that going to be enough? Um, and will the bank take pause? There's going to I, the, the problem is inflation is not going to react that quickly. It very likely will stay at its elevated level for at least the next little while. And so, 
Um, you know, this if this gets us to the bottom of the neutral rate, I'm not sure it ends what the bank does. They've always been data dependent and they will, but if that data is slow moving to bring it in, uh, it, it might be hard for the bank to, to to sort of sit there and do nothing with inflation as high as it is. So we might, maybe they'll slow down the incremental pace, um, but, but, but I think it's gonna be tricky for them to, um, you know, to, to stop completely. Uh, but again, there's going to be some 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 factors at play here that are going to make that determination, right? Like how how does the housing market react, right? How do consumers who have those variable rates react? How big is the market? Um, fortunately, here in Canada, we've got a lot of people with five-year fixed rates, uh, and so there's some uh, you know there's some advantage there as those people take you know in the time it takes them during that five years, their nominal incomes typically go up, and so if you have a fixed rate, you can handle some of an increase. Uh, in your mortgage rate. So some of this we'll have to see how it plays out, but but it, it, it's tough to say exactly when the bank's going to stop, but maybe the neutral rate provides them, a, you know, the opportunity to go a little slower. We're, we're not forecasters. And yeah. uh, after what we've been saying about the likelihood of recession, there may be uh, people listening and, and, and seeing this who would say, yeah, you better stay out of the forecasting game. Uh, but one thing that I would keep an eye on, uh, Michael, in your situation with a variable rate mortgage is uh, the Bank of Canada's core inflation measures. Uh, the bank itself thinks that they are better indicators of the future trend of inflation than the total CPI, which has some volatile elements in it. And the reason I mention it is because it's a fairly straightforward uh, rule of thumb to say, well, the overnight rate, the, the interest rate uh, really ought to at some point uh, get equal to the rate of inflation. If the interest rate stays below the rate of inflation, um, then it's hard to argue that monetary policy is tight. So one of the things that I would be doing in your situation is uh, look at that core rate of inflation that the Bank of Canada calculates. They've got three indicators of it, sort of average them together. Uh, if they're getting close to 5%, then probably that's the interest rate you should be stress testing against. If they go to 6%, stress test against that. Keep an eye on that because it's a pretty reasonable indicator of what the momentum of inflation is. And it's hard for me to see how the Bank of Canada gets inflation down if they don't get the overnight rate, at least for a little period of time, equal to the rate of inflation. Uh, you mentioned the early 80s. I mean, back then, the overnight rate had to go way above the rate of inflation to bring inflation down. That might not be necessary this time. It's hard to see, though, how they do it if the overnight rate never even gets to the rate of inflation. Well, I feel good that I've been stress testing at five and a half already, but, and you point out that you're not forecasters, but you do see the odds of a recession over the next two years as being high and a recession being defined as two back-to-back -back quarters of economic decline in real activity. So how severe a recession though, just six straight months worth or more? That, a lot of the uh, how how long and severe depends on things that affect the productive capacity of the economy as well as demand. So we know uh, from recent experience, unfortunately, that the world can throw uh, nasty things our way. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine was a disaster from every point of view, including economic and what that has done to inflation because it it it, it hit the economy's supply side so badly. Um, it looks to me just just thinking about the 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 very high level numbers that we've been talking about as though uh, we're likely to see two three or maybe four quarters of of real economic activity that is very flat and whenever it's very flat the possibility uh, of dips is there uh, but before throwing to Jeremy, because he may have a different view based on what he's seen in terms of money growth and his, his thoughts about the Bank of Canada's uh, natural rate of interest, when I came out with the uh, uh, 
newspaper column in which I said it looks like a pretty much 100% now with that latest inflation number that we will have a recession. I got a number of uh, notes from people saying, well, it's great that you predicted a recession, but what do we do about it? Uh, let me just say that financial markets have a way of anticipating these things. One of the leading indicators that a lot of people have looked at lately, for example, is what's happening to long-term versus short-term interest rates. Equity markets are off a whole lot right now, and that's partly because of what's happened with interest rates, but it's also because of nervousness about the economic outlook. Um, if the past is any indicator of the future, uh, the bottom of the equity markets will come a lot before the bottom of the economy does. So what do you do about it? Well, you take that buying opportunity when it comes. Uh, the reason more people don't is because they're feeling so bruised and beaten up by seeing the value of their portfolios fall. But the time comes when it's time to buy, and that's before the recession hits its trough. So keep an eye out on that. And uh, uh, even if I'm a lousy forecaster, there might be an opportunity. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I'll, I'll point to a few things, some pessimistic, some optimistic, just to maybe change my my reputation. But, you know, the, the, on the pessimistic side, and I'll start there, you know, one of the unfortunate things is that every country is going through this, right? And, and so that's problematic if you're an economy like Canada's that does do a lot of exporting, right? And so that's that's something the the, the slow the slow of slow growing global economy uh, is definitely something to be to be concerned about at how severe this becomes right much like 0809. Um, on the more optimistic side, and I've raised this a few times, uh, I, I do think the labor market being as tight as it is and having as many people who as many job vacancies, which is not something that you usually see. Uh, in a recession. And you mentioned the two quarters of growth. Again, the Business Cycle Council here at the CD Howe Institute would take it. We don't like that definition as in its, I know everybody uses it, but it's, it's you can have two quarters of slow growth and have no additional unemployment. To me, that's hard. It's hard for me to describe that as a recession, right? Um, so that labor market, I think, is really important to keep an eye on. And then just one other thing about where we are at in all of this, and Bill mentioned the money growth, um, that money growth has slowed. Um, the three, if you look at the sort of the, the quarter over quarter annualized growth in, in, in money supply, it has slowed uh, significantly compared to where it was. And so that might be a sign that we're already starting to see some of what the Bank of Canada has done bite. And if we have, maybe we're, we're sort of getting into that, you know, nearing that, that trough or at least, uh, you know, it might mean that we don't have too much further to go for the Bank of Canada to drive this thing even further down. Okay, one last question now that the Institute's back at the office uh, to a degree. Are we back to wearing ties again, gentlemen? What, what's going on? <laughs> well, I was just hosting a webinar. And uh, just as at a live event, it's a good idea when you're the host not to be the worst dressed person in the room. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how uh, old habits may have changed or, or may come back. Uh, certainly, if you're in the business of providing uh, office-appropriate clothing, you're desperately hoping not just for a return to the office, but also for a return to something more like the sartorial standard that existed before. Uh, and it may be that uh, uh, you know people often talked about coming out of COVID as though it was coming out of the Spanish flu, and then in the Roaring Twenties when uh, suddenly lapels got very wide, and uh, uh, you know there was a whole new cycle of uh, daring fashion. 
fashion. Uh, I don't know that I would predict that, uh, but for the time being, I'm I'm saying that the tie, and uh, even though neither of us is wearing a pocket square uh, for men, I think that sort of thing is uh, is going to be popular. And um, uh, there's an old uh, saw about hemlines and the state of the economy uh, in in female dress. So uh, maybe that's something else we need to keep an eye on as we desperately look for you know what what kind of indicators can help us get through this. I just had a stain on my shirt, so I wore the tie. No, I'm, uh, no, I, I yeah, I, you know, we we have an event tonight too, and so uh, so I thought it was it was appropriate to wear it for this, as I'm going to wear it uh, wear it tonight. And Michael, if I can say one other thing about 1983, since you raised it as the eternal optimist, one good thing that came out of 1983 was me. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, late stage Gen X. Bill Robson is the president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Jeremy Chronic, the associate director of research at the Institute. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and insight. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.